0: All right. let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, thank you for this time to come together to worship you, to fellowship, to learn from your word, and to to be blessed with more of you and to be blessed with your presence. We pray that you would bless this sermon, that you would give us clarity, you would give us understanding, and you would give us encouragement. We thank you for your grace and amen. So today we are continuing our series that we've been doing called the GCF Vision. Uh, The vision, or the GCF vision, is a term we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on it in a while, or not since Greg was teaching our RCF. Um, And the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And at the core, there's there's five of them. Uh, The first one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel, Number two, being grace-based rather than performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic, which is the one we're still on. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. And so again, uh, we're not at all saying that there's no churches that do well in these things. A number of churches do well in one or two, and various other churches do well at a different one or two, but sadly, very few churches have all five of these qualities, but we believe God wants to make that more commonplace. Um, so we're continuing a subsection of this series called The Strengths of Charismatic Churches. We recently finished the section, The Strengths of Reformed Churches, where we talked about um, you know what... Reformed church culture is and what the strengths are and now we're talking about what charismatic church culture is and what its strengths are And then after we finish this section We'll talk about the unique Synergy and strengths that come from both being reformed and charismatic So there are certain qualities that I would say are typical of a quote-unquote charismatic church Uh, The first one holding to continuationism rather than cessationism which we talked about last week Also receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about today. Emphasizing uh, pursuing and experiencing the gifts of the Spirit, which are for today. Uh, Participating in spiritual warfare and deliverance. And having a culture of worship and prayer and expectation. So today we're going to talk about receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there's an outline in here, bulletins, and I missed a typo that I made. It says receiving the Baptist in the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and uh, that is not what I meant. <laughs> Technically it's spelled correct, so it didn't show up with a red line under it, <laughs> but it's receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So what is the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Uh, let's start there. So I would say one of the strengths of most charismatic churches is that typically they have an understanding of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and they believe that all Christians should receive it. Uh, But what exactly do I mean by that? What is the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Uh, So how I'm going to define it, the baptism in the Spirit is a secondary experience of receiving the Spirit where converted Christians are filled with the Spirit in greater measure. I'm gonna read that again. Uh, The baptism in the Spirit is a secondary experience of receiving the Spirit where converted Christians are filled with the Spirit in greater measure. Now notice that I said it's something that happens after conversion. Uh, I do wanna mention that whether whether receiving the Holy Spirit or being baptized in the Holy Spirit happens automatically to every Christian at the moment of conversion, or whether it's something that happens after conversion is a subject of much debate And for good reason. Um, But there's two views on it. The first one is the idea that receiving the Holy Spirit is referring to the Spirit starting to indwell a person when they receive Christ. And the second view is that uh, while all Christians indeed are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment they receive Christ, the term receiving the Holy Spirit, as it's used in the book of Acts, refers to a post-conversion experience where the believer is filled with Uh, in a greater measure of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This view holds that post-conversion receiving the Holy Spirit is not just a gift for a select few, but is God's will for all Christians, similar to water baptism. Water baptism is God's will for all Christians, yet it's not something that happens automatically at conversion. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit is like that as well. So I would say even though which one of these two views is correct isn't necessarily the clearest uh, debate, uh, I would still say there's sufficient biblical evidence for the second view, and we're going to look at that. We're going to examine that in just a second. But before we examine that, I do want to start uh, by showing from the Scriptures that all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. So let's look at Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that's pretty clear. That's pretty cut and dry. Um, Anyone who is a Christian, anyone who's received Christ, anyone who belongs to Christ, has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is in them. Another verse that points out that all Christians have the Holy Spirit Uh, indwelling them from the moment of conversion, is Ephesians 1 verses 12 uh, through 14. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So those two passages make it clear that a person, when they receive Christ, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit at that moment. But having looked at that, uh, we're now going to move to the evidence um, that what the book of Acts refers to as receiving the Holy Spirit is something that happens after conversion. There's five passages of Scripture we're going to look at. Uh, The first one is in Acts 8. Let's turn to Acts 18. No, Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's notice a few things about this passage. First off, These were already believers. It says, um, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that they had received the word of God. They had already received the word of God. They believed the gospel. They received Christ. These people were believers. But they didn't automatically receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter and John were sent for that. And some people might question whether or not they really believed it, but it doesn't say that Peter or John preached it to them again when they arrived. It says that they prayed for them and laid hands on them. So it would be weird if they had heard it before Peter and John came, but didn't really believe it, and then just happened to start believing it right when Peter and John laid hands on them. That is quite unlikely. So they were true believers, and it said that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. Not only that, but it seems like the apostles had the expectation that they weren't going to automatically receive the Holy Spirit just by becoming believers. Else, why did they send Peter and John? It seems like they had the expectation uh, that after becoming believers, they needed to receive the Holy Spirit. So that's evidence for that in Acts 8. But let's also look at Acts 19. Acts 19, 1 through 6. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's an interesting question to ask, but we'll get back to that. And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So some things I want to point out in this passage. Paul clearly has the expectation that they would not necessarily have received the Holy Spirit just because they were converted to Christ. That's why he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And someone might, you know, raise the objection that they weren't converts at that moment, but that still doesn't explain why Paul asks the question at all. it's pretty clear that Paul was under the belief that they wouldn't necessarily receive the Holy Spirit, uh, whatever is intended to be meant by that, right at conversion. Else, why would he even ask them? And I also want to point out that they didn't immediately receive the Holy Spirit as soon as they believed. It says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, so at that point they believed, they heard the gospel understood and believed it, And then Paul laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So not only did Paul have the expectation that they wouldn't receive the Holy Spirit automatically just by converting to Christ, it wasn't until moments after they received Christ that they received the Holy Spirit. Let's also look at Acts 9, Acts 9, uh, verses 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So I would say this is when Paul received the Holy Spirit. And Ananias says that he was sent not just so that Paul would regain sight, but that so he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say he was sent so that Paul would believe. I think there's strong, strong reason to think that Paul already believed at this point. It would be a bit um, weird if Paul, after seeing Christ and doing what Christ said to do and having three days to think about it, still didn't believe. It would seem he believed pretty quickly after seeing Jesus. And someone might suggest that um, he didn't really know the gospel and maybe Ananias was sent for that, but I'm pretty sure he did know the gospel because he was persecuting Christians not because he didn't know the gospel, but because he did and he didn't believe it. He knew the gospel and that's why he persecuted Christians. So you have to ask, why did God send Ananias so that Paul would be filled with the Spirit? God didn't send Ananias so that Paul would be converted. Paul had already believed. And also note that when Paul receives the Holy Spirit here, it's by the laying on of hands, just like we saw in the two chapters that we just examined. So those are, um, I think, three cases from the book of Acts that kind of show this idea, that Whatever the book of Acts is referring to when it says receive the Holy Spirit is a post-conversion experience. I also want to point out that it's always something that happens usually moments to at most days after a person is converted. Or that's what it's supposed to be. But We've got two more passages that somewhat show evidence for this. Let's look at Acts 2. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, you know, this is the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is Pentecost. And, um,. And the disciples received the Holy Spirit at this point. But didn't the disciples already have the Holy Spirit? There's some reason to think that they did, or that the Spirit was already indwelling them. They already believed in Christ, uh, but let's also look at John 20, verses 21 through 23. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he said this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withheld forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So there is reason to think that the disciples were already indwelt by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And uh, let's also look at John chapter 1. Let's look at John 1, verses 29 through 33. Jesus' baptism. And the next day, when he saw Jesus coming toward him, or when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So at Jesus' water baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him and remained on him. But are we to believe that the Holy Spirit hadn't been indwelling Jesus up until then? That seems a bit strange. That seems a bit strange that the Holy Spirit would indwell John the Baptist from the womb, but not Jesus. So I think... Quite likely, uh, the Spirit descending on Jesus and remaining on him at his baptism is similar or to the same to what happens in the book of Acts that's referred to as receiving the Holy Spirit. So because of these five passages, I think there's... Um, significant enough evidence for the idea that receiving the Holy Spirit when used in Acts is referring to a secondary experience that comes after a person is converted. And again, it's it's usually moments to days after that's ideal. That's what it's supposed to be. So that being said, uh, I want to clear up some potential misunderstandings. There's three potential misunderstandings that I want to clear up. Uh, First off, um, believers who have not received the Holy Spirit are still indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Again, we we already saw that in Romans 8, verse 9, and in Ephesians chapter 1, Uh, but I just want to make sure that we all understand that. Believers who have not received the Holy Spirit, as the terms used in the book of Acts, are still indwelt by the Holy Spirit if they've received Christ. Second thing I want to point out uh, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is meant for all believers, just like water baptism. Water baptism is meant for all believers, it's God's will for all Christians, but it doesn't automatically happen in conversion. And receiving the Holy Spirit or the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the same. And someone might say, well, if it's God's will for all believers, why isn't it taught on in the epistles? But water baptism isn't directly taught on in the epistles either. Nowhere in the epistles are we directly instructed to be water baptized. The epistles seem to just take the assumption that the believers being written to have been water baptized. And nowhere do they directly teach on it at all. And then the third thing I want to point out... um, just to help us avoid misunderstandings, is that after receiving the Holy Spirit, there's there's subsequent fillings of the Spirit. There's always more being filled with the Spirit to do and to happen. Let's look at Acts four, verses twenty seven through thirty one. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And now, Lord... after what happened in Acts chapter 2, this is after Pentecost, and even though in Acts chapter 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Because being filled with the Spirit is a continual thing. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the Greek word used here for be filled is in the present tense, not in the future tense. And in Greek, like in the present tense, we, in English we use the present tense to describe uh, something that's happening now, like when it's happening, but in Greek the present tense is used to indicate ongoing action, something that's a process, like the sun is rising. The sun doesn't just rise at one moment, the rising is a process. It's an ongoing action. And so the word be filled, it's a command and it's in the present tense. So a better way of understanding it is be being filled. We are to ongoingly be filled with the Spirit, continually. Since we're talking about that, I just want to point out, it's interesting that even though God is the one who fills us with the Spirit, be, being filled with the Spirit is a command. It's in the present passive imperative tense. It is a command, which means we have to seek it. Because if whether or not we're filled with the Spirit was something God was going to do regardless of what we do, he wouldn't command us to be filled with the Spirit. All right, so those were just some uh, potential misunderstandings I wanted to clear up. Next, let's talk about the effects of the baptism in the Holy Spirit or receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, what does it do? What's the point? What happens when a person receives the Holy Spirit or when a person's baptized in the Holy Spirit? Uh, There's like four different things I've listed that I want to point out that are the effects or the result, the outcome of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, The first one that we commonly see is speaking in tongues. Let's look at Acts 2, verses 5 through 8. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that that we hear each of us in our own native language? So that's Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the initial outpouring of the Spirit. They all spoke in tongues. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 46. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And believers from among the circumcised who had come come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Let's look at Acts 19, verse 6. And when Peter had, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So we in Acts, when we see a person baptized in the Holy Spirit, we see tongues with it, speaking in tongues, and we'll we'll get to more on that in a bit. Another thing that's uh, common a common co- consequence of receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit is boldness for the gospel. Uh, let's look at Acts 2, verse 36. So, you know, Acts chapter 2, the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just a few weeks before this, Peter wasn't feeling very bold for the gospel. He had just denied Christ. Um, He seemed to be concerned for his life, and he had repented of that, but he, he didn't seem particularly bold for the gospel a few weeks before this. But then, after receiving the Holy Spirit, he seems to have more boldness. He says while he's preaching, right after receiving the Holy Spirit, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Like, that's a bold thing to say to a crowd of people who just crucified Christ. They're not very kind. They might not receive it very well. So we see Peter has more boldness for the gospel after receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's also look at Acts 9, verses 17 through 20. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road which you came, uh, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he was baptized, and taking food was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Saul was well aware of the dangers of persecution, because he himself was a persecutor. He was well aware that he would be in danger for proclaiming Jesus. In fact, maybe more so than others, because there was probably some shock among the people he used to run with Saul, you're proclaiming Jesus? we got to do something about this. I doubt they were too happy about it. And he knew they wouldn't be. And I would say, in general, being more filled with the Spirit leads to more boldness for the gospel. Um, You know, like we just read in Acts 4.31, and when they prayed, Uh, They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In general, being more filled with the Holy Spirit leads to more boldness for the gospel. So those are two effects of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. uh, Speaking in tongues and boldness for the gospel. The next one I want to mention is uh, the gifts of the Spirit. Now, I do want to point out, I think um, believers who haven't yet received the baptism in the Holy Spirit... Can still experience the gifts of the Spirit, but they tend to do so in greater measure after the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, but, anyways, let's look at some verses that demonstrate gifts of the Spirit being something that commonly comes uh, with receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. So this is Acts chapter two. This is just after they initially received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Let's also look at Acts six, five through eight. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Procurus. And Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramenus, and Nicholas, a uh, proselyte of Antioch. Uh, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many number of priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So among the deacons who were chosen, it points Stephen out as someone who was particularly filled with the Spirit, and it also points out that great signs and wonders were being done by him. And lastly, let's look at Acts 19, verse 6 again. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So again, we commonly see more gifts of the Spirit when a person receives the baptism in the Spirit. Uh, The fourth effect of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, uh, this is kind of just a, a grouping. It's almost like using the word et cetera, but I would say the general effects of the Spirit, but in greater measure. You know, if you have more of the Spirit, if you're more filled with the Spirit, whatever the Holy Spirit normally does, you'll have more of. Yep, like the fruits of the Spirit. Because the baptism in the Spirit is just a greater outpouring of the Spirit. So the effects of it are the same as the effects the Holy Spirit normally causes, just in greater measure. All right, so now I want to answer some questions about speaking in tongues, or two specific questions I want to answer, rather. Um, The first one is, what is the purpose? So what's the point? What is the purpose of speaking in tongues? It, it kind of seems like a strange thing to do. Um, so the first purpose is speaking in tongues is for prayer. It's for prayer, and I would include thanksgiving and praise in that, because thanksgiving and praise are types of prayer. But speaking in tongues is for the purpose of prayer. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men... But to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries, or he speaks mysteries in his spirit. So that's the first clear verse that says, um, you know, speaking in tongues is prayer. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, he doesn't say, um... You know, if I speak to people in a tongue, he says, if I pray in a ton, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. So when he says pray with my spirit, he's talking about praying in tongues. But I will pray with my mind also. And by saying pray with my mind also, he's talking about praying in a language he naturally speaks. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Let's also look at Acts 2 verse 11. Uh, Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, were hearing them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they were praising God. They were praising God for the mighty works that he had done. Let's also look at Acts 10, verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, or praising God. So we see that um, speaking in tongues is for prayer. It's a type of prayer. It's praying to God in a different language that you don't naturally speak. I would also say that the purpose of speaking in tongues, or praying in tongues, is for edification, for building uh, a person up in their spirit. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4. The one who speaks on a ton builds up himself, or edifies himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Let's also look at uh, Jude 1, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Based on uh, what Paul said about praying with my spirit, I think there's reason to think that Jude, when saying praying in the Holy Spirit, is talking about praying in tongues. So building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So it's hard; it might be kind of hard to explain exactly how it builds a person up, but when a person prays in tongues, the Holy Spirit is working in their spirit, um, drawing them closer to God, and doing positive things in their spirit. It's kind of complicated. We're not going to get too deep into that. But it, it's for edification. It's for growth. It helps the person who's praying in tongues to grow spiritually. So that's the first question. Uh, what's the purpose of speaking in tongues? The second question I want to answer is, is praying in tongues meant for all believers? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30. I forgot to put that one in my notes. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? So that's kind of confusing. Uh, do you all speak in tongues? That's a good question. So the common thought about this, which I think there's reason for, biblically, is that in the scriptures, there seems to be two different types of speaking tongues. The first one is tongues as a gift for corporate use, and the second one is tongues as a prayer language. Uh, To give an example of tongues as a gift for corporate use, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 through 18. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore... Therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are all out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So in this passage, we see an example of the gift of tons for corporate use, which I would say is different, a different type of tons per se than tons as a prayer language. And I also do want to point out that um, this speaking in tons for corporate use, even though he talks about it being for unbelievers or as a sign for unbelievers, isn't for the sake of sharing the gospel without translation. Uh, Because Paul says that if an unbeliever enters and they're all speaking in tongues and no one's interpreting, they're just going to think they're all crazy. So I don't think that this was for sharing the gospel without the need for uh, translation. Nonetheless, uh, it's thought that alongside the gift of interpretation, there can be a use of corporate tongues for speaking messages from God similar to prophecy. And there's also tons as a prayer language, which, you know, we've just looked at. So speaking in tons uh, for a prayer language would be a second type of speaking in tons. And there's reason to think that tons as a prayer language is something that's meant for all believers. Let's look at Ephesians six verse eighteen. Praying at all times with the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So, this is just at the end of Paul talking about putting on the armor of God, and this is for all believers. Paul isn't just writing to some believers in the book of Ephesians. Well, I mean, it's to the Ephesians, but it's for all believers. The armor of God isn't just for some believers. The armor of God is for all believers. So praying at all times in the Spirit is also for all believers. So that's the first reason I would say tons of prayer language is something for all believers. And then there's also the verse in Jude we looked at, Jude 1.20. Uh, Again, Jude isn't just writing to some Christians in the church he's writing to when he talks about um, building yourself up, praying in the Holy Spirit. So there's reason to think that tons as a prayer language is intended for all believers. And praying in tongues is something we almost always see in the book of Acts whenever someone gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. We see speaking in tongues along with it. So let's get to the last part of this sermon. How, how do we receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit? If a person hasn't received the baptism in the Holy Spirit... What do we do about that? What can we do to receive the Holy Spirit? So in the scriptures, there are often three elements related to receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, The first one is prayer. Let's look at Acts 8, verses 14 through 15. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Let's also look at Luke 11, verses 9 through 13. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks to him it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think it's interesting that in, uh, in Luke, when Jesus is saying something similar to what was recorded that he said in Matthew, um, ask, seek, and knock, he says, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, that implies we are supposed to ask For the Holy Spirit. Another thing that's commonly associated with receiving the Holy Spirit is faith. When we pray for God to do something, He wants us to pray in faith, and sometimes He wants us to step out in faith. When a person prays to receive the Holy Spirit, As the Spirit gives utterance, like we saw in Acts chapter 2, when he gives us words to say, to pray in tongues, we have to actually choose to say them. And that's stepping out in faith. The Holy Spirit doesn't force you to do it. It says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So as the Spirit gave them words to say, they chose to say them. The Holy Spirit doesn't force you to do things. He enables you to do things. And we have to step out in faith by saying the words the Holy Spirit gives us. And that's how a person speaks in tongues. The third element commonly associated or seen with receiving the Holy Spirit in the scripture is impartation or an atmosphere of impartation. Usually in the scriptures, when someone receives the Holy Spirit, it's in an atmosphere of impartation. Usually there's another Christian there who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit who's ministering to them. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case, but it's often the case. Uh, It's in a number of the passages we just looked at earlier. When Paul received the Holy Spirit, it was when Ananias came and laid hands on him. In Acts 19, when new believers in Ephesus received the Holy Spirit, it's when Paul laid hands on them. And in Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritan believers received the Holy Spirit, it's when Peter and John prayed for them and laid hands on them. So my personal recommendation for anyone wanting to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit is to set up a prayer meeting where you can be prayed for and where you pray to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In, uh, you don't necessarily have to have an atmosphere of impartation to receive the Holy Spirit. There's cases where people receive it without that. But it's, it's recommendable. So that being said on how to receive the Holy Spirit, I quickly want to mention a few potential hindrances to receiving the Holy Spirit, and then we'll get to our conclusion in communion meditation. Um, there there are sometimes some hindrances that can hinder a person from receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first one would be incomplete conversions or uh, better stated, false conversions. Uh, sadly, in America, we have a lot of false conversions, people who haven't really believed the gospel. They just attend church every Sunday and you know, claim to be a Christian. I'm an American. We're all Christians. This is America. But we are not all Christians. Let's look at John 14, verse 17. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, so, the world can't receive the Holy Spirit. And, you know, sadly, because of our poor presentation of the gospel in America, there's a lot of um, false converts in the church. So, incomplete conversions can be a hindrance to receiving the Holy Spirit. Another hindrance, or potential hindrance to receiving the Holy Spirit, would be doubt. God wants us to pray with faith when we pray for things, and... uh and doubts that we hold on to in our hearts can sometimes keep us from receiving what God has for us. A person might be struggling with the idea that God would want to give them good gifts, that God would want to give them the Holy Spirit. You know, God never gives me anything good. I'm, I'm just different. Uh, that's a common internal belief. And a lot of us have struggled with that type of thing to some degree. Or a person might just be struggling with believing that God would do supernatural things in their life. Uh, Sadly, natural-mindedness is such a problem in America, it greatly influences even the church. But doubt can be a hindrance to receiving what God has for us. We we need to pray with faith, with expectation. The last thing I want to mention of potential hindrances to receiving the Holy Spirit is unrepentant sin. Uh, Let's look at Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Any unrepentant sin, sin that we're purposefully hanging on to and not repenting of, can get in the way of receiving what God has for us. It could be unforgiveness, it could be occult involvement, it could be pornography, but any sin we know of that we don't repent of can get in the way. So that being said, in conclusion... The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for all believers. And I think, you know, there's good evidence in the book of Acts that what the book of Acts refers to as receiving the Holy Spirit is something that happens to a converted Christian after they've become a Christian. We've seen multiple cases of that. And it's something that we all need. And therefore, it's something we should seek. You know, be being filled with the Holy Spirit is a command. It's something we're to seek. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock, and God will give the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for all believers, and it's something we should seek. Um, I also want to mention at the bottom of the back page of your outline, um, Greg did a series that is more detailed than we have time to get into. And I put a link to that series. It has the audio and the outlines. But that's it goes into more detail than we had time for today. And it's, it's a great series. It's very helpful. So if you would like to know more details about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, I would recommend checking out that series. Also, if you would like to be prayed for to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, uh, you can talk to Greg, and there will be people up here today uh, who you can talk to. You could talk to the elders or any of the leaders. But if you are interested in receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit, please talk to us afterwards and ask for prayer. And we can uh, work on organizing something. Uh, So let's get to our communion meditation. Jesus bore our condemnation. Let's look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. There is no more wrath for the children of God because every last drop of it was poured out on Christ. You know, we get tempted to think that God might still have some wrath for us, but it's not like God was um, punishing Christ for our sins on the cross and then decided, well, I'm just going to save these few drops of wrath and maybe give it to him later. Not give it to Jesus later, give it to Josiah later for his stupid sins he's going to commit. No, God doesn't do that. God poured every last drop of his wrath out on Christ, and he has no wrath for his children. So let's praise him as we come to the table.